So welcome to another episode of Top Class with me, Duncan Crawford, where we're discussing climate change and education. People often say education is vital to changing the world, but is education also the key to saving it? With greenhouse gas emissions growing, average global temperatures rising, and seemingly ever more climate-related disasters, the decisions made by governments, businesses, and indeed all of us concerning the environment over the coming years will echo down the centuries. So what should students, teachers, and schools be doing to educate the next generation so they can, frankly, do a better job than most of us and help prevent climate change? I'm joined by Matthew Pye, a philosophy teacher in Brussels and founder of the Climate Academy, which works with school children to promote understanding and action to tackle climate change. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. My pleasure. So where to start, Matthew? This is obviously a huge subject. I think to begin in your view, are schools doing enough to educate kids about climate change? Well, I think, as you said in your introduction, um, this really is about saving the planet. I mean, I think that's not an understatement. And it's easy to understate the depth and the scope of the crisis. And I don't think schools are doing enough uh, as it stands. We tend to leave them uh, to small pieces of syllabus, like ad hoc additions to biology or uh, physics or geography things. And we don't tend to get much beyond plastics and recycling. And the scale of the crisis is far bigger than that. So schools, in your view, are failing students? Is it as strong as that, fair to put it in those terms? Well, I think so. Um, I mean, of course, schools do amazing things, uh, wonderful things. Uh, we, we, we teach literacy, numeracy. We bring out the best of them in all kinds of spiritual and moral dimensions. I mean, we... We do a fantastic job, <laughs> um, but that's not to say that we do every job great. And this crisis, like every sector of the economy and society, uh, we're failing. And I think unless we're prepared to uh, look at it squarely, then we're just the status quo as it is. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions have only ever accelerated, apart from the COVID years. And the temperature has only increased. So something is wrong with the status quo at every level, political, economic, and education is part of that. And that's because what's required to get out of the crisis is a paradigm shift, uh, not just tinkering. And we are only ever prepared to tinker economically, politically, and only ever tinker also in education. So it's always left to the sides. It's always left as an afterthought or something that you just do at the end of something. So what do you think needs to happen if at the moment, as you describe it, climate change or tackling climate change is an afterthought in many schools? Um, earlier this year, the scientific body that advises the UN on rising temperatures released a report. It made extremely sober reading. It made clear that there's very little chance of stopping the world from warming by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. It will likely breach 1.5 degrees Celsius by around 2030. Does that terrify you, knowing that information and given the description you just gave of the state of schooling in this area? Yeah, and I think in terms of like the data, the, the 1.5 is almost already locked in. So although the temperature 
won't express itself until 2030. Um, there's always this time lag between us on our pathways, these emission pathways, and then the temperature actually being there. And so when you think about that, you know, like seven years before um, 1.5 is, is, is here amongst us you know, in, in the world, and then two degrees is only 15 years away. Um, when you think about syllabus reform and how long it takes to achieve these things, the first thing to do is just think, okay, we, we really do have to treat this as an emergency. And that is a phrase which is now so often said, we'll almost become numb to it. But when you put it in those time frames, then you're thinking about children who are now in school, uh, let's say in primary school, they're going to be graduating into a world of two degrees. And when you look at the co political commitments for um, emissions reductions, most of those don't actually start to happen until 2030 because of the way in which political commitments are set up. They're always lagged so that we start to reduce by a date in the future and nobody's reducing emissions now. All the political commitments are for later. So how do you explain the dangers here and make it understandable to people? It, it is difficult to understand because the numbers are always so abstract. You're talking in terms of carbon gigatons, um, and emissions reductions by this percentage and that percentage. But the quickest way into it is to see temperature at a systems level. And that is to think about your body as a little bio, mini bio system. And that is set up to function at 37 degrees. And everything works at 37 degrees. It's got millions of years of evolutionary history, which make it function at that temperature. And you can't suddenly flip it to 39 degrees. So a two degree rise just doesn't work. If I had a two degree fever, I'd be in bed. I'd be feeling extremely lethargic. And at four degrees, I'd be in hospital because that's called hyperparexia uh, by doctors. And that's a medical emergency. And I would die in 24 hours. So likewise for the planet, you can't push it to four degrees. You get a total systems breakdown. So at two degrees, at four degrees, those are what, behind those numbers, which seem, you know, in a way, very small numbers, there are massive implications. Again, the way you've explained that, it is a terrifying scenario. And we've all seen already the impacts of climate change in terms of floods, storms, hurricanes, fires, you name it. So I guess practically, how do you teach children about this? If, it, if the next generation are so important in being a part of the solution to this. How do you teach children and not scare them at the same time? So I think you have to do it in a graded way. I would not say such system level things in primary school because I think it's it probably just toasts their brain. And I think you even have to be very careful how you present it to uh, older students. But at the same time, it's just the truth. Um, and the problem is not going to go away if we don't speak about it. And it's a big, scary world out there for teenagers anyway. Um, and we don't shy away from teaching the Holocaust. That is brutal to put those images and to teach through uh, the Third Reich's horrendous mutilation of humanity. And we don't not do that just because it's awful to look at. And so this horror is in the future and not in the past. So, you know, we have to look at it. Um, is that a difference, though? Is there a danger, because it is about the future, not the past, that 
you're going to make children potentially anxious or depressed about the future, which could then potentially lead to a feeling of resignation or other feelings because the reality predicted by scientists is so devastating. Yeah. And I, th- I think the first thing to say is that there are some students who already know it. In some cases, some students know more than their teachers and more than their parents. When you look at the recent scientific research in The Lancet, for example, they identified a very high number of students with climate anxiety. And that's not just some sort of empty feeling or nebulous anxiety about the future. It's, it's drilled by hard facts, these sorts of facts, scientific facts, about what two degrees is and how many gigatons are left. So there are students who get it. And for them, it's extremely weird to be in a school which is not responding. And when you go into a lesson on climate change, the teacher ends up talking about solutions which are all about plastics and recycling. I mean, that, that's anxiety-provoking because you can see that the scale of the response doesn't match the size of the problem. Um, so I think that's an important thing to recognise, that in a way, the secret is already out. And for those students who don't know it, we have a responsibility, I think, to give them the truth and give them, then, a way to respond to it. That's the crucial thing. You don't just tell them and dump them with this situation. You give them ways to respond. So let's focus on teachers for a moment. Teachers obviously help shape how children see the world. What would you like to see teachers do specifically in their classes to help educate the next generation about climate change? Well, I think there's some key vocabulary that is just missing. Um, I Last week, I was doing some presentations to my whole school. Um, so in one day, we were doing a climate change project and there were several hundred uh, students coming coming through this kind of cycle of presentations during the day, so several, maybe five, six hundred in the end. And of that five and six hundred, a tiny minority knew what a tipping point was. Um, and to our audience, in case not everyone knows, what is a tipping point? Well, yeah, and exactly that's the point. <laughs> this is, and I don't want to be patronising. I mean, I only found out about tipping points like 12 years ago as a um, 40-year-old man. So, you know, I, it was new to me. Um, you don't look a day over 41. <laughs> well, it's a good job this well, is no a No one listening can see your skin, but you obviously have an excellent skincare regime. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do this on TV then. So, yeah, a tipping point is a point at which a system loses an equilibrium which can't be recovered. So a system gets out of balance and that balance is so profoundly disturbed that you can't bring it back to what we would call normal or the status quo. The Amazon rainforest, that collapses at three degrees. The permafrost at four degrees. The Great Barrier Reef, already that's all, we've already gone past that that tipping point. So just the word tipping point is a key to unlocking a systems level view of the crisis. And when teachers are talking about climate change, it only ever tends to be on a local level or an individual storm level or an so the kind of the details, but not the full picture. And I think teachers need to bring to the surface the fact that what we're talking about, the reason why this is an emergency and all this language that we've had for the last few minutes is so extreme, is that the whole system could get out of balance and collapse and it can't be recovered. 
and and that's that's why it's so uh, essential. So practically, in the school environment, which teachers should be doing this? In all different subjects, different stages of education, are there particular areas where these kinds of things should be taught? Yeah, now that is a good question. Um, I think most, the teachers that are, that can do the most work, of course, geography teachers in secondary school. That's where it really, where it, the action can happen. But a lot of the work could actually happen in L2 classes. And by L2, I mean a, a second language. Because that's one of the subjects where there isn't such a compulsion to get through subject material for an exam, where it's really driven by yeah, mathematical, you need to know these equations or those techniques, or in chemistry, you have to, you know. So different subjects have their own um, really heavy content demands, but second language, you can learn a language through anything, any sort of conversation or any topic. So those are the two areas, that, or let's say called the soft spots, where it would most likely uh, drop in. I, I would just add that the way in which our school systems are set up is that we conceived education in the 19th century. And what did we need in the Industrial Revolution? We needed literacy and numeracy. We didn't need holistic thinking. We didn't need system-level thinking. So your question's a good one because it's not easy to work out exactly where you put it in. No, how, how do we fit this into the current structures of a school? It's, it's really difficult. And I also think there's an argument for just making sure that in 2024, we make sure that every single teacher has got just a basic grip on the science at a systems level. What reaction do you get from teachers, potentially even government ministers or school officials, when you say these kinds of things? Do they agree with you? Do they say it's a possible reality they can make happen? Or is there pushback? I, th I think in general, as soon as you have an audience, uh, either through a presentation when I give lectures or talks, or when I'm in meetings, presenting the Climate Academy, for example, then within 20 minutes, you can make a very clear case for this being profoundly important. And they realize, they let's, let's say they get it, this notion of just getting it. And there's a big difference between not getting it and just seeing climate as this kind of do-gooder, tree-hugging, bio-apple-eating kind of profile or thing. And I think if... In 20 minutes, I don't think anybody ever can then in a way resist doing something or seeing that it's important. Um, the problem is getting that audience. So if it's like cold emails or trying to push like that, then it does get tend to get pushed off. So is it actually about having the communication, face-to-face -face communication time to try to get people to change their behaviour? Yeah, because there is such a gap, there, there is such a gulf uh, between... Um, the climate reality as it is and the general awareness of the crisis. And it's not just schools. I mean, the, the media is guilty as well for only giving us fragmentary, individual-level responses to things. Everything we've been discussing, this is a controversial topic in certain parts of the world. Controversial with certain people, certain politicians, certainly even some teachers who are climate change deniers. They don't believe it's happening, despite the overwhelming 
consensus from leading scientists, governments, and the evidence for that matter. So what do you do there? How frustrated are you when you see or hear of teachers who deny climate change and you know that those attitudes are potentially being taught to children? Yeah, that's amazing. I don't, in a way, I don't know what to do with it. The psychological or social filters that must be in place for somebody to not see the crisis clearly must be so deep that there's almost nothing you can say. There's, there's no point talking because you're just going to talk past each other. So I think in terms of the, let's say, the hardcore climate denial, then it's a lost cause. I think the the main scepticism that we have to deal with is the much more pervasive one, which sees it as marginal somehow, or that it could be handled by tinkering with the status quo. That's the much more pervasive scepticism which we have to fight. So how important then is language in all of this? I think we've used the term climate change, climate emergency may have come up, climate crisis... There's all sorts of terms, and some, of course, dismiss the science as well, say it's just changing weather, extreme weather, they don't accept the premise. But what language would you like to see used which you think potentially could help alter people's perceptions? Yeah, well, I think, again, it's a good question because I've been doing this for 12 years, so I set up the Climate Academy 12 years ago, and I noticed an enormous shift in vocabulary uh, when Greta Thunberg came around. And she started using language which is now standard. And that, that itself is an important shift. Do you think that has changed the way people perceive the issues, that shift in language or not? Yeah, I think it, I think it did. By calling things in emergency, um, and for example, just the move from global warming to global heating, that also has a certain extra weight. So how we talk about it... Um, is important in terms of vocabulary. And I think Greta really had a, of all of her legacies, that's arguably the greatest thing that she made it mainstream to talk about it as an emergency. Um, I remember before that really struggling to give lectures and talk about this because it seems so out of kilter, out of key with everybody else that I just looked like a lunatic, you know? <laughs> It can't be that serious. I mean, which scientists are you talking to sort of thing? You know, I, what kind of odd YouTube channel are you are you on? Whereas what Greater achieved by her, you know, singular protest uh, is, yeah, a shift of... So I think that's important. I know you talked about what you see as major issues in the way this is discussed and taught in schools, but do you think that the current generation of school leaders then are taking it seriously enough? It's a good, I don't know, is the modest answer. Um, I can only speak from personal experience. And that is, whenever I go into a school and talk about these things, there's a big reaction. And that would indicate that they don't, unless I turned up. And I don't want to see, you know, I'm sure there are many teachers out there who get it and who are talking about these things. I don't, I don't want to seem... Like, I'm the only guy out there, the only teacher who's saying these things. I'm, I'm sure there are thousands of teachers around the globe who are, who are talking about this, but they're the exception. They're not yet the norm. And I think if you look at it, there's, you could ask a question, you could flip the question and ask, well, why would they know it? In all that we just talked about in terms of how syllabuses are, in terms of how the media is, 
why would they know that this is a, a, a sixth mass extinction event? In what subject are they told it in really frank terms? And the, I think we don't. So what can schools, as organisations or groups of schools, do practically? What would you like to see schools do to embed climate responsibility in what they do? Well, I set up the Climate Academy 12 years ago and it really was just for my own students. So I was working with them, going through all these questions about how much to say, dealing with the anxiety that comes from it or the paralysis that you get, like, well, what difference can I make, etc. And in the end, now we have a, a program and a package of things which, first of all, gives them this systems level understanding in a few short chapters, which are readable, like one chapter every week for a small group of students. Um, and then it gives them different ways to do projects which are systems informed and which have a systems impact. So I know this sounds like I'm advertising my Climate Academy, um, and in a way <laughs> I am, but I don't know if there's equivalent packages out there. I don't, I've, no, I've not seen them. I've not seen material which gives a quick systems view of the crisis, seriously informed by the science, but in a readable way. And I don't see schools doing projects which are systems informed and which try and mobilize students into the civic space to have a systems level impact. Uh, schools 99% of the time are doing projects which are tactile and which are to do with individual actions or let's all reduce our waste or let's all um, pick up litter or let's all recycle, but not educating others or trying to do things which are, I keep saying it, but systems level. A part of that, when you're talking about systems level changes, is that engaging with the parents? Do schools need to be reaching out to parents on this topic in some way? Yeah. Eric Chenoweth, the Harvard uh, professor of political theory, political science, uh, she talked about a 3.5% rule. So this 3.5% rule says that for major social change, you only ever need 3.5% of a population to flip the status quo. And that's a wonderfully small number. So what we've said so far, in a way, is pretty desperate, it's pretty dark, it's pretty uh, dystopian. But actually, social change has always happened rapidly. Whenever it's happened, like the civil rights movement, for example, from a situation of centuries of systemic abuse, systemic racism, systemic inequality, within nine years, so from the first bus boycotts to the signing of the Civil Rights Act, that change happened so fast in the end, it would have been unbelievable to the people on the wrong side of it, of history. And that is the same for the climate. If you can mobilise a really energised, able group of students in any school at 3.5%, that's, I don't know, 15 students, 10, 15 students, they are the ones that can talk to their parents. They're the ones that can talk to their classmates. They're the ones that can talk to their teachers. And they're the ones that can go on local radio and write articles and make videos and start to get this stuff out there. So you don't need everybody to understand everything you just need a small group to really get it and then run with it 
and you can have an the transformative impact can be absolutely massive. So given everything you've said, and I think we've alternated between optimism and pessimism really in this discussion, are you yourself an optimist or a pessimist about the world's odds of preventing catastrophic climate change? I'm both um, because I have to be. And just like with the students, I do what I can. And I didn't know 12 years ago when I started the academy that I would eventually flip it into an exportable concept. So now we're just looking to export it and, and have it taken up as, as far as possible. And that's growing fast. Uh, there's obviously a hunger for it. You know, we hunger for the truth. We hunger for reality. We hunger to have a meaning and projects in our lives. So that's an enormously powerful energy to, to surf, if you like. So that's like the optimist in me. Um, and yet at the same time, every single scientific report that comes in, like over the summer, the one with the, um, the penguins and the, the Antarctic melt, and that's, that is tragic for all those thousands of penguins, but it's also a signal of the breakdown of that massive uh, ice sheet. And last summer it was Pakistan going a third underwater. You know, it, it is pretty relentless, the, the scientific affirmations of the tragedy that, that we're all uh, embedded in. So, it sounds yeah, like you're really cool. struggling to stay an optimist. Yeah, that is true. Um, Do you think net zero is realistic? Well, I don't that we will, as a planet, <laughs> be able to ensure that the I amount think. of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere does not yeah. increase? I don't like the word net zero. <laughs> Can I reject that word? Um, we, net, if we, my problem with net zero is that there's always ways in which you can fiddle the accounts to get to zero. And either that's by delaying or, you know, if we actually, if we're actually going to plant all the trees that are promised in net zero, then you'd need about 94 planets. Um, so I don't like 94, <laughs> 94 planets. This is, uh, that's not scientific. I don't see this being discussed very often on the mainstream media, if that's the case. So you're saying that a lot of promises or commitments, pledges out there are potentially not going to be fulfilled. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, 94, that was not scientific at all. I, I could, in fact, I couldn't bring it to mind now, but I do know that the land mass of the earth is not enough for all of the trees to be planted. You can't plant trees everywhere. That's the other thing. And I'm just picking on trees as an example of the net zero problem, but there are other net zero plans which are equally odd. In a way, this is another one of the problems of vocabulary. Um, we should be talking about zero, not net zero. We should be talking about gigatons. We should be talking about how many gigatons are left for 1.5. And when people meet in COP meetings, they don't talk about gigatons and the objective carbon budget which is left. To come back to um, the optimist or pessimist question, because I said to you, well, it sounds like you're more of a pessimist. That, you know, if you are sounding like more of a pessimist, how does that feed in again to the students in terms of anxiety and fears for their future? Does that make it sometimes harder to engage with them? Um, no, because I think you can... It's a bit like... One of, the, one of the tricks is irony as well. Like, 
you know, if you look at Greek literature, or, you know, our most wonderful cultural heritage, the deepest things that we experience are like tragedies. So I don't think there's anything which is necessarily um, disempowering or paralyzing about it. You can always use humor and just kind of, okay, let's get on with it, let's do what we can. And yeah, of course, I'm talking to you and this is a podcast and we're talking at a certain level. Uh, students are not, maybe not listening in, this is more for teachers. So of course I filter and, and calibrate my, my words and my phrases and my approach. What I feel with teachers uh, is that we need to just get a grip. We need to just look at this as it is. So part of that process is first of all, just engaging with it, with the crisis at a, a realistic level. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Fascinating talking to you and good luck with all your projects. We will wrap it up there, but thanks again for joining us. I think anyone listening to this, you've put the arguments across very strongly that action is needed and it's needed now or even yesterday. Uh, education has a pivotal role to play, to raise awareness, to give students the skills, knowledge and so on they need to get involved, to shape attitudes and behaviour and so much more. Uh, what more is there to say? Everyone needs to play their part. Thank you again to Matthew and to those listening. Please join me again for another episode of Top Class soon. All the best. Thank you.